Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me each week as we explore the minds of living composers. We talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Ethan Sperry. Ethan is the director of choral activities at Portland State University, as well as conductor of the Organ Repertory Singers. He is a prolific arranger of world music and popular music and has octavos published by Santa Barbara Music Publishing, Hal Leonard, and C.F. Peters. Ethan serves as a consultant for the KM Music Conservatory in Chennai, the first classical music school in India, which opened in 2009. And his performances with his choirs uh, were hailed by the Oregonian as the best choral concerts in Portland in recent memory. Ethan Sperry, welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be on the program. Well, as I mentioned, you are a professor at Portland State University. Uh, as I was researching you, uh, preparing for this program, I ran across your Rate My Professor page. Uh-oh. Have you ever looked at it before? No, I did not know I had a Rate My <laughs> page. Well, you'll be happy to know that all the students who have visited the site rated you a five out of five and left some wonderful comments about you. Oh, okay. Good to know. <laughs> so I wanted to know from you, uh, what's one of the things that you love most about teaching at Portland State? Oh, Boy, I mean, everything, but Portland State is uh, an access university, meaning anyone that graduated from high school can go. We uh, and we have the lowest tuition in Oregon. Like, so we're not looking at your SAT scores or or any any of those kinds of things. Um, the kind of students that, that we get, um, it's not college as seen on TV. Most of them are, are working to put their way to, to work their way through school. And most of the mm -hmm. students I teach, they want to be music teachers, which is the best career out there, even though our society does not <laughs> reward that with a competitive salary in, in any way, shape or form. But um, I, I have taught it at schools where the students are more privileged. And that is certainly my background. I come from a background with a tremendous amount of privilege, but I, I just, the students value their education so much when they're paying for it themselves sure. and, and have that kind of desire. And uh, we, we get amazing, amazing students. Well, you do amazing things with that choir. I can tell you that. Uh, so are you a native of the Pacific Northwest or did you grow up somewhere else? No, I grew up in New York City. Uh, I only moved to Portland to take this job, although a little selfishly because my wife uh, grew up in Seattle, Tacoma area. So uh, we have a lot of family on, on her side of the, the country uh, out here, which is great. But yeah, I've lived in, uh, I grew up in New York City. I went to college in Boston. I taught junior high and high school in Boston. I went to grad school at University of Southern California uh, and then taught at Miami University in Ohio for 10 years. Uh, before moving out here. So I've, I've got a pretty decent perspective on the country, I think. Oh, I sure. Now, I, you know, I, I've often talked to conductors who have stepped into the role much later, but I read online that you were conducting at age eight, started cello at 12 and singing at 18. Seems sort of backwards from how some people start yeah. the progression. Tell me about that journey. Well, I mean, my father's a professional musician. He's a singer. Uh, he's 88. He's still teaching uh, wow. at the School of Music <laughs> and at Brooklyn College. Um, so I certainly grew up going to a lot of concerts and I asked for piano lessons at age six and 
I didn't like a lot of the chamber music concerts and the song recitals uh, that my dad was was bringing me to, but I went to my first orchestra concert at age eight, and according to my parents, said that's what I want to do. I pointed at the conductor and I said that's what I I want to do. And um, this was at the Aspen Music Festival uh, in the summer, where my dad was on the faculty, and they have a conducting program there. And my dad called the head of the conducting program and said, "Do you think one of your students would come over and and give my son some conducting lessons?" And so they found a very brave student named Peter Bay, uh, who is now the conductor of the Austin Symphony in Texas, but at the time was an undergrad. And he came over and he taught me all the beat patterns, um, taught me the names of all the instruments of the orchestra, where they sat, how to read a score and in order and all of that kind of stuff. Wow. Um, and he actually drew, uh, uh, well, no, he didn't. Uh, my mom then drew a picture of the orchestra all laid out um with the uh with a podium in front with uh, the word ethan on it and we found that that uh drawing in her desk after she died um, oh, wow. she kept that her her whole life from like from when i was eight so i was starting working on beat patterns and score study and it took all the way till being a junior in college for me to to leave the dark side of orchestra and cross over to the light <laughs> of, of being in choir instead but i uh i was studying orchestral conducting quite seriously for a while that's great so grad school brought you out to USC, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, for both your master's and your doctorate. Were you studying conducting, composing, a little bit of both? What were you uh, doing? My major was choral conducting. Okay. Um, although I had already done a ton of arranging for my acapella group in college and for my high school choirs. Um, and then I wound up studying choral arranging with Morton Lauritsen uh, while I was at, at USC as well. And then he and I share a deep love of poetry. I actually wound up doing a minor field in poetry that oh, he wow. advised uh, as well. So... Uh, I studied not only how to write music, but also really how to look at text and, and and take that apart, which is not offered as far as I know as part of any choral conducting graduate program. And and, and it's got to be because like that's what we're doing. We're interpreting text. How um, do you how do you teach your own students to look at text? Um, we don't have a specific class in it, but we talk about it in, in every single piece, whether it's the one that they're conducting in class or whether it's the ones that, that I'm presenting in the chamber choir that they need to sing in. Um, and how you talk to them about the, how do you talk to the audience, uh, how you do the program. So it's a little bit more of a mentorship thing, but we just don't let a piece go by without that being a part of the discussion. Absolutely. So when did you decide that? composing was something that you wanted to sort of pursue? Um, I mean, I, I just sort of always been doing it as part of what you do. And, and in the pop acapella world, which I did a lot of, that's sort of the ethos. Like, right. you know, everyone has their own arrangements. Nobody goes out and buys somebody else's arrangement in, in the pop acapella world. So I, I sort of fell in into it that way. And then once you start doing it, I mean, it, it's a lot of fun. Um, and especially when you're teaching high school and, and middle school, it's it's so great to be able to write a piece that just fits the voices in your choir mm -hmm. uh, at that age. Cause you know, I mean, Mozart's a great composer, but boy, did he not write well for the high school tenor. <laughs> and it just, and, and it, it causes problems. And so when you can really write to the group of kids in, in front of you um, and then they feel special too, like this piece is for them, you know? Absolutely. Did you start arranging in, in high school or was that not till college? Uh, not till college. Okay. So you're doing more orchestral, instrumental through yeah, high I, school. I mean, I guess technically speaking, I did write a piece when I was six, which I also still have. Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, I wrote a piano piece. Little piano so, piece. Yes, it's called the C minor chords, and it consists mostly of C minor chords. But you know, hey, I would be disappointed if it didn't. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> so the choirs that you've conducted over the years have always done remarkably well in competition, notably in 2013 when the Portland State Chamber Choir was the first American choir to win the, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce it's it called right. the Sigitsi. Uh, yeah, Sigitsi contest in Italy. Yeah. yeah. So with all the prizes that you've won, the tours you've led, what's a, a memorable moment that made a lasting impression on you? Maybe an experience you think about often. Uh, definitely not winning any of the awards and stuff. Um, I mean, that, that's very cool. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's always really fun to, to win things, but choir isn't really about that. Um, just to be perfectly honest, it really helps when you're going on tour to go to a competition because it helps fundraise to pay for it. It helps people in the choral world to understand why you're going like to sort of frame it with a, with a sports mentality. Mm -hmm. Um, because people sort of get that and they'll give money for that. But it's always singing with another choir that you come away remembering when there's a shared musical experience with somebody from another culture. Um, and I've had so many of those, but the one that sticks in my brain the most was when we were in Bali in Indonesia. Um, and we were staying at the hotel where the contest was. And this hotel had a huge swimming pool. So choirs would be hanging out around the swimming pool waiting for their results. And I'm walking back to my room and I, I hear this guy singing uh, the P.A. Yezu from the Andrew Lloyd Webber Requiem. Mm -hmm. So I start duetting with him and I walk around the corner and it's an Indonesian guy. And he's like, oh, you must be from the American choir. And I'm like, yeah, yeah there's 126 choirs here and we are the only non-Asian choir. So <laughs> yes, uh, I am. And they're like, we're doing a piece by your conductor, Ethan Sperry. And I said, oh, that's me. And that's the piece Zicker that we're going to listen to uh, in a little bit. Um, and so his choir was all around the pool and they all came over and they started singing it. And a bunch of my kids, we were also singing that piece in my choir and my kids are in the swimming pool and they swim over uh, and start singing it. So we have this Indonesian choir in formal wear, like, uh, and my kids in their swimsuits all oh, that's awesome. uh, singing this piece together. Uh, and I mean, I have story after story after story like this, but it, it's always about singing with other people and realizing how connected you immediately feel to someone when you know that they get choir. Like that's yeah. just one of those things. You, you have something really in common with anyone in the world. Absolutely. I think anyone that has sung in a choir sort of understands that connection yeah. that you get with the other people in that room. Yeah. It's fabulous. You know, even with virtual choirs, even though you're not singing with them, when you sort of watch the finished product, you feel connected to everyone that participated. That's right. And that wouldn't work if the people had never sung in a real choir. That's true. Because that's you're, you're, and that's the thing that the virtual world, like we don't get it. It's, it's not, I mean, it is not virtually a choir. It's, it's just sort of this shadow right. that helps us remember, but you could never introduce anybody to the art form with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I was interested in your work with the KM Music Conservatory in sure. India. How did you get connected with that? And what sort of work do you do with them? Well, uh, <laughs> That's a longer story, but the, the shorter <laughs> version is that almost by accident, I met A.R. Raymond, who is the most famous Indian film composer. And people in America don't like to advertise this, but he is the best-selling recording artist of all time. Oh, wow. Um, A.R. Raymond has sold more albums than Madonna, Britney Spears, The Beatles, and Michael Jackson all put together. Um, well more than that. And we don't like thinking that in America, that the best-selling recording <laughs> artist is not only not American, but has brown skin and is Muslim. Uh, you know, that that's scary to a lot of people. But um, I met him in 2003. And 
uh, at the time he was getting more and more interested in using more Western orchestral instruments in his uh, in his film scores. And in India, because of the British occupation, you do have a decent amount of people that play orchestral instruments, but they literally all play the same instrument. I mean, there's a billion violins and flutes. <laughs> and some people will cross over to viola and there's a few cellos and basses. But I'm not kidding. To the best of my knowledge, when I met A.R. Raymond in 2003, there was not a single oboe or French horn player in the entire 1.2 billion people in India. Um, and so when Raymond wanted those instruments, he was often contracting from Malaysia or whatnot. But um, I was the first Western musician he had ever met that was doing one of his pieces. I had arranged one of his pieces for my choir. And when he saw my choir sing the piece, he had never, ever seen a non-Asian perform any of his music before. Mm. Not once. And he burst into tears because for him, he was said it was his first evidence that his music could cross cultural boundaries. That's you fantastic. Know, like my choir, which was primarily white with some black and Latinos and a couple of Asians. Um, this was when I was teaching in Ohio that, you know, that like uh, that we and it's not just that we were singing the piece. I mean, my kids loved this piece and you could tell it. You could see it on their faces. It wasn't just that I had forced it on them. I mean, they they were super, super into this piece. And it was just an amazing revelation for him. He eventually decided to start this conservatory um, because he really wanted the pride of having an orchestra that was all Indians that oh, yeah. play these film scores. And uh, my real role was trying to find young, brave uh, Western uh, folks to come teach there because they didn't have Indian teachers for a lot of the instruments. Right. Uh, and so that was the goal. But, you know, even before that, I was sending uh, like on Balalaika that we're going to listen to later in the original version. It's one of my students playing French horn in that orchestra score. It's like I've got a French horn part and literally, you know, uh, me and three kids, a, a French horn and two trombones went flying over to India to record a bunch of pieces mm. for this album. Uh, you know, uh, it's uh, it's been quite a wild ride. But like I got involved with KM because uh, I, I was working with A.R. Raymond. So. So it opened in 2009. So I assume you have some graduates and things that are now able you know, to fill some of those roles. Some. It, the school has never really gone where where he wants it to. And he, he keeps letting it bend. But everybody comes because they want to be a film composer. Uh -huh. um, it's been much harder to find the kids who want to study the oboe and that are going to. I mean, I think, you know, this here, it's not enough to just like let them into conservatory because they played flute and transfer over to oboe. And in right. a couple of years of college, you're going to turn them into an orchestral oboe player. Um, I wish it were that simple, but we are trying to generate enough teachers to allow this to to, to trickle down and start offering it at younger places and private lessons. And right. um, there are more kids doing it in in Chennai than than there were, but um, it's it's just not that simple a proposition. Sure. Um, at the same time, uh, the school has been a real magnet for. Um, kids that are interested in the technology and A.R. Amon is not only a great composer, but he is a truly sophisticated electronic musician and he's consulted with Sony uh, and with Apple for years. I mean, he's on the cutting edge of the program logic. He's one of the people that really oh, wow. helps figure out where that program is going to go. Um, and that school has really become a hotbed of, of, of well, I guess Westerners, um, we think about the relationship between the written music and how it sounds, the, the dots on, and lines on the page. Um, A.R. Raymond doesn't. I mean, he can read Western sheet music because he had piano lessons, but I'm not kidding. This guy sees the relationship between waveforms on a screen like you see in Logic and what they sound like. Wow. 
and he can have a he will play a line on on the piano for a song and then he'll have his cellist come in and the cellist will listen to the line and then the cellist will play it back and, and improvise and embellish and A.R. Raymond will then take that waveform and replace the piano part with the cello in the full score but then he'll start modifying it in various ways and he can literally almost like a sculptor work on this waveform to make it it sound the way he wants it to sound um and getting a program that allows you to do that um uh, i mean he, he's he's he just sees music in that way and uh it, it, it's quite unique and he's he and and like-minded people have showed up at the conservatory he, he's he's gotten quite a lot of other people uh, on board with that that is incredible yeah, it's definitely not how my mind works. <laughs> no, but it allows him to write. Like in in a good year, he'll write ten film scores. That is amazing. That is amazing. All right, so Ethan, when you're not musicking, when you get a day off, what do you like to do? Uh, I like to eat and drink really, really good food and really, really good wine. So that's easy. Unfortunately, I don't necessarily need a day off to do that. I can often do that on a work day. <laughs> there you go. Do you do you cook yourself, or do you like to go out somewhere? I uh, well both I I do I do mostly cook mainly because I just have kids at home, uh, and I used to do much more fancy cooking before they came along. Their their palates are not at that, that <laughs> level yet, so I cook much more simply now. But you know, buying a good steak and cooking it is not that hard, and uh, it's it's very enjoyable. Um, I also love hiking and and bike riding, and being in the Pacific Northwest is a pretty ideal climate. Oh for sure, those things, which is is pretty wonderful. Are your kids still pretty young? Uh, they're in, well, they're not so much anymore. They're about to start ninth and 11th grade. next. Okay. Week. So, and I guess that leads me to my other big hobby, which is video games, which I really get to do with them, which is, uh, truly fantastic. And uh, I've also gone back full high school myself. I have started a multi-generational Dungeons and Dragons uh, group with my kids and some of their friends and some of my friends. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. Which is old. It is a blast. I hadn't played since high school, but both my kids are super into it, which is great. That's awesome. All right. I got one more question for you before we take a break. And yeah. there's a question I'm asking all my guests this season. Uh, who is another living composer that you think we should check out? Maybe not necessarily your favorite, but just someone else that you know and can think of that you think we should know. Eric's Eschenwalds. Eschenwalds. Yeah. Yeah. What is it about Eschenwalds that you think we should listen for? Um, boy, I've done two albums of his music um, with my choir and I wrote this in one of my booklet notes. Um, there's something about Western classical music that as much as I appreciate it, there's something that we get wrong. Um, and it's like, it's a mankind kind of thing. Um, uh, human architecture consists of lines, triangles, right angles, especially squares, rectangles. These aren't shapes that occur in nature. Nature is all about spirals and swirls and, and curves. Mm -hmm. And to me, major and minor chords sound like right angles. They're very satisfying. But Eric Sessionvalds has figured out what curves and nature sound like. And he uses it both for music about nature and for music about the divine, um, you know, mainly Christian divine, although he's he's gone into some other cultures as well. And it's also clear that like he sees the connection there and, and something comes out of his chord structures he just gets that at a very visceral level. That's a, a great description. I want to go back and listen to some of his music with swirls and spirals in mind. All right. Well, after we take a quick break, we are going to listen to some of Ethan's compositions. All right. Welcome back. I am talking today with Ethan Sperry. First piece that we're going to listen to today is Daesh. 
an Indian raga for SATV acapella choir. So in this piece, you simulate the shruti box, percussion, and melodic instruments used in the traditional Indian raga. So correct me if I don't explain this properly, but my understanding of raga is that it's not so much a complete piece of music, but more a collection of pitches, sort of like how we understand scales in Western music. If that's that, Okay, if that's the case, how do you go about creating a full choral piece based on a raga? Well, it's two things. So raga has has two definitions, and they're completely unrelated. The first one, as you said, is, is a raga is essentially a scale. Um, and India just has a lot more ragas than we tend to have scales. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is Daesh, but our ragas tend to be called major and minor. Those are the ones we use the most. And, and major, that's the same set of notes on the way up and way down. And minor is two, unless you do the melodic minor scale, right, which is different notes on the way up than on the way down. But we've had other, other ragas in Western music, the Ionian mode or the Dorian mode or mm -hmm. uh, things like that. So a raga is the collection of pitches you're going to use to to improvise a piece. Um, so it's sort of like calling a piece calling a piece dash would be like calling it D major. Okay. But a raga is also a kind of a form. Um, I, I sort of think of it as like the word sonata. Um, a piano sonata is like a piece in several movements for piano, and then the first movement tends to be in sonata form, which is a completely different thing, right? That's right. Nice. So. Raga is also like the name of a piece where a small group of people improvise based on a raga scale. And usually you would have what's called an alap, uh, where you would have the introduction, where you would introduce the scale that you're using independent of any rhythm. And then you might have a drum solo, and then you might have a faster uh, tintal or more rhythmic section. Okay. Um, and then maybe we'd go back and forth. Maybe you'd have some more drum solos and some more improvising. But that's sort of the standard form, but a little bit like jazz, that's sort of the standard, and then you can do what you want. Um, some jazz composers like stick pretty strictly to the scale they're improvising in. Others bring in all kinds of notes from other scales. Um, so saying that you're doing a raga doesn't mean you can't add some other notes. Uh, it just depends on, on like where you fall in that improvisatory thing. Um, I got really, really fascinated with Indian classical music, and you can't really do it with a choir because you can't improvise with a choir. So Daesh is what somebody might improvise uh, on this raga scale based on two different melodies. The slow part was was written based on a melody that A.R. Raymond sang to me once, which is a longer story. <clears throat> um, but he never wrote it down or anything. I think my my version of it is the only thing that exists. Um, and then the fast version uh, was based on a melody suggested to me a little bit by Rashid Khan, but it was also, um, I went to a, a beginning drumming school uh, when I was in India the first time. Uh, and it's based on a lot of patterns that they were teaching as a children's game to first graders, second graders, and third graders. And my college students found these rhythms very, very hard and very challenging, most choirs do, but it seemed quite easy for the first, second, and third graders at this school in India. So uh, it, it's these kind of ideas. And then I sort of improvised a way they might have and wrote down that improvisation. But it also calls on my pop acapella arranging. The idea of this piece is that we're gonna use our voices to simulate the instruments that would play an Indian raga. Just like in pop acapella, you use your voices to be the electric guitars and the right. drums and all of that. So this is kind of a pop acapella version of a fixed improvisation. You know, it's, it's a lot of cultural fusion that's going on here, but it's a great tool, uh, certainly if you're teaching middle school or high school or any kind of ethnomusicology course to teach your students a lot of the beginnings of how you would learn about Indian music, to teach them a raga scale, to teach them a lot of these basic rhythms, and also the Carnatic rhythmic solfege syllables uh, that exist called uh, konakol by some or, or, or um, 
uh, solkatu by others. But there's a, a strict set of syllables that Indian percussionists learn when they're learning to play the drum. Hmm. And they will actually learn to speak their drum parts out loud before anyone even hands them a drum. Oh, wow. Um, and the most common one you'll hear a lot in this piece is da din din da da din din da, which literally means hit the drum in the center where it's low, hit the drum on the edge where it's high. Da din din da da din din da. Um, so you'll hear that kind of thing a, a lot in here where, uh, and you will see Indian uh, people improvise on this in concert. Like they will have learned it as kids, but now this is a very common thing to see on the Indian classical stage is somebody yelling out these very complex percussion patterns. And it can be call and response with a student where the, you know, the teacher will yell out da ding ding da da ding ding da and then the student has to play ding 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 Or it can go the other way around uh, where the teacher will play and then the student has to go right? And so it's a great pedagogical tool, but it's a really fun concert effect too. So in this piece as well. All right. Well, we are going to listen to Daesh here performed by the Portland State Chamber Choir.
Our second piece today is Zicker uh, for TTBB Chorus, uh, this arrangement of a piece originally written by A.R. Raymond, uh, as you mentioned, prolific Indian film composer, uh, wrote this for a documentary, Bose, the Forgotten Hero. Mm -hmm. uh, so I understand that this piece is religious, but not intended for worship ceremony. That's correct. So in Indian culture, what is the difference between you know, worship ceremony music versus concert music? Well, uh, this is not primarily Indian because India is majority Hindu. Mm -hmm. um, A.R. Rahman is Muslim. He was born, okay. converted to Islam. And even though he's a very devout Muslim, uh, Zikr is the first piece of his that I really wanted to work with him on because it's the only piece that he's ever written that's, that is in his Muslim faith. Um, and I really thought the world needed more exposure to Muslims than what we see on the news, which is sure. main terrorists who make the news. Um, Bose, the Forgotten Hero, is one of the beginners of the of the uh, Muslim uh, Islamic sect called Sufism. So we hear a lot about the Sunni Muslims and the Shia Muslims in Iran and Iraq who are constantly fighting. And, and, and there are indeed many of them who are, who are violent. Uh, then again, there's many Christians and Jews who are violent. Uh, but the majority of the world's Muslims uh, who live in Indonesia and Pakistan are actually Sufists. Uh, mm. And Sufi Islam has as one of its primary tenets pacifism. And the act of zikr, zikr just means chant or prayer, um, is sort of like a, like an African American spiritual. You know, it's it's a piece that certainly talks about religion, but it's not part of the mass or anything like that. It's yeah. not a creator or Gloria. So um, the Muslim liturgy is fixed. You would never sing part of the Quran outside of a worship service. Um, this is just a piece that references Sufist ideology um, and talks about uh, you know sort of the greatness of learning how to read and, and, and learning how to, to follow the one God and his teachings, including pacifism. Uh, and so I really thought that this was an important piece to have out there for choirs to sing, to get a, a different view on what Islam can be and is for hundreds of millions of people. Sure. I, I can definitely get behind that. All right. Well, we are going to listen here to Zikr uh, here performed by Kantus.
Our next piece today is Balilaka, uh, SATB Chorus and Percussion. So as mentioned, uh, this is also an arrangement of a piece by A.R. Raymond. Uh, this piece is a real tongue twister, mostly because of its speed. So what is this about and what challenges or considerations were there while you're writing it? Uh, so I, I particularly did this piece because I think it's probably the hardest thing that he's ever written to sing. And he works with this incredible vocalist named Sukhvinder Singh, who improvised this crazy tongue twister uh, <laughs> on the set of this movie. Um, and your viewers need to go watch the YouTube video of this. Balalaika, it's from the film Shivaji, S-I-V-A-J-I, um, which is an early Indian action movie. And one of the things you got to understand about Indian movies is they all have musical song and dance numbers in them. And those musical song and dance numbers have nothing to do with the plot of the movie at all. They're just there. Right. When I was in India and I was going to the movies and I, uh, you know, would ask, I asked, remember asking this Indian student, why do all of your movies have these songs in them? Because uh, this, this, this song has nothing to do with the plot of this movie at all. It, it could just come from anywhere. And he looked at me kind of strangely and he said, I don't know. Why don't yours? <laughs> And to me, this is exactly the right question we ask about like different cultures. We always sort of assume our culture is the right way to do it. I mean, why shouldn't movies just have song and dance numbers in the middle of them? Uh, you know, what's wrong with that? And, you know, there's usually three or four in the first half and three or four in the second half. And there's a whole war for spectacle. How big can you make your, your song and dance number? But this is the primary way that pop music comes across in India, that people, when they write an album, it's basically the, the six or eight songs that are in a movie. Um, it's very rare that that a band would release their own songs. The vehicle is is through being seen at the movies, uh -huh. and just this this tongue twister. I, I this was one of the pieces where I'd had a student come over to play French horn for it. So I'd been there at the sessions when when the song was being written, and I was like, "This is amazing. We just we just got to do this for choir." Um, and you know, I thought it would be only us doing it, but um, this has become my best selling piece by far. Um, and Raymond has has commented on it a number of times that he thinks like that. Right. This is the thing. People love a good challenge. Yeah. You know, you write thinking something and it's so hard and who's going to take that on. But like, you know, Indian music is so much more rhythmically complex than, than ours is. And and this gives people a window into that. And, you know, it also patter pieces have been huge successes in Broadway shows and Gilbert and Sullivan, you know, for a long time. And I, th I think it taps into that appeal as well. Um, I'm not sure telling you what the lyrics actually mean will help anybody understand the piece. <laughs> uh, I think going to the YouTube video will help people understand that more than anything else and just see that the pieces, in my opinion, and this is, I think, something all cultures and people like to do, the piece is about showing off uh, and having fun. And it also brings something else to life because this, this piece is one of the most joyous pieces I know and everyone I know responds to it that way. Like this is one of the most happy, joyous pieces I know and it is distinctly in B minor. And here in the West, we think, you know, minor is sad and major is happy. But this is the happiest piece there is, and it's in minor. And I say that because I'm Jewish. All our music is in minor. We've understood <laughs> it for a long, a long time. Um, and I'll also say, because there, there's been a lot of discussion about cultural appropriation and, and should a white guy be working in Indian music? And the answer is, I don't know, of course, whether I should be. Um, I will say this. A.R. Raymond has gone on record as saying he specifically wanted to work with me um, because he wanted to show that a Jew and a Muslim could work together to create something beautiful. Um, and I do think that that's a really worthwhile thing. And uh, it is certainly possible to appropriate music from other cultures, but there's also tremendous benefits and joy in collaboration. And uh, of course, part of this is, is consent. A.R. Rahman is alive and is choosing who he wants to work with. And a lot of music we arrange is 
you know, uh, well, we get into a lot of trouble with African-American spirituals. We don't know who wrote them. We know the history between white people and, and black people in this country, and you can't necessarily get consent. So, um, you know, it, it's not a it's not a simple issue, uh, but it's certainly one I've thought a lot about. Absolutely. All right. Well, we are going to listen here to Balilaka uh, here performed by the Mount San Antonio College Chamber Singers.
So our last piece today is Divi Shirmi Kumalini for SATB Chorus and Percussion. So there's a slight deviation from the other three pieces, as this is a Latvian folk song. Mm -hmm. uh, the title translates to Two Gray Steeds, and throughout this piece, you really make those horses move. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> what is it about, uh, what is this piece about, and what were you trying to convey while you were writing? Uh, well, this is certainly the the coolest commission I've ever gotten. Um, I was asked to be a part of a really great project by the uh, National Youth Choir of Latvia, the choir Kamer, um, which as far as I'm concerned is one of the finest choirs in existence. And uh, they were doing a project called Project Amber. Uh, amber is one of the only gemstones that occurs naturally in Latvia. Mm. No, sorry. Amber is the only gemstone that occurs naturally in Latvia. And they think of their folk music as their gemstones. Uh, Latvia and Estonia are the two countries in the world where the most people sing in choir. Like right. one out of three people in the whole country sing in choir. And they believe that this folk music is what really held them together under constant occupation by Germany, by Russia, by Poland, by you know um, centuries of occupation. And yet they kept their language. They, they kept their culture. And so Khmer commissioned an entire program, 16 Latvian folk songs arranged by 16 composers from 16 different countries. Oh, wow. And then they released it all as a giant book um, where you could get all of them together and, and, and recordings of all of them. And uh, what they really wanted was an international look at their folk music. They wanted you know, their music to cross over and become part of more of world culture. So they sent me a whole book of Latvian folk songs with a native speaker speaking all the text and introductions. And I mean, I got so much information to be able to really understand what I was doing and, and you know, not just stick my toe in the water, but to, to dive off the deep end and mm -hmm. into the culture and the music. And um, the two gray steeds in this are the, the steeds in the house of God. And, mm -hmm. and you can hear that, you know, they're going to pull the sun across the sky and you can hear them in the beginning of my arrangement and in my imagination, kicking in the stable. Um, and in the, uh, in the original version, it's a very slow piece. Oh, and it's also in a, a strict meter. That kind of thing. Um, and to me, these are the steeds. They're the Latvian people. And they are, as they were when this piece was written, probably sometime in the 1100s, 1200s, you know, imprisoned and, and sad. Right. Now they're free. Um, so I, I set this with a sort of an angry beginning as the steeds are trapped and there's this big tribal drum, which they use in a lot of their music, which is you know the pounding of the horse's feet. And then as happened uh, after World War One and again after World War II, especially they, they, uh, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, they break free, which is where they are now. And they run and this piece becomes fast and multimeter and passes between each of the different sections and just like gallops off into the sunset. and. Having been there, that's where this country is. I mean, there's so much joy from these people that were oppressed for so long um, and, and have now become free. And uh, I mean, this this kind of stuff always resonates with me. I think it, it's got to resonate with any any Jewish person. Um, and I assume African-American. And, and, and I mean, there are so many cultures that have this, but very few that get to the level of freedom that they have right now. And uh, boy, I, I wrote this piece before the current uh, situation with Russia and, and Ukraine, you mm -hmm. know, and that freedom is never guaranteed. Uh, so, yeah, so here you have it. Hopefully we, we stay in this fast mode for, for, <laughs> for a while to come. Hopefully. All right. Well, we're going to listen to Divi Shirmi Kumalini here performed by Kamer.
All right. Well, Ethan, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Oh, gosh. Um, I I mean, as you, you've heard, you, you call me a composer and a lot of people do, but so far, everything that I've written that I'm proud of has been an arrangement, meaning it starts with somebody else's melody. Um, now, a lot of great composers, especially in the classical era, really were arrangers mm -hmm. most of the time. Bach maybe is the most classic example where almost all of his famous pieces for choir are based on Lutheran chorales, like he didn't right. write the melody. Um, so I'm not saying that to d diminish myself, but uh, I do think arranging and composing are two different skill sets. Uh, but I am going to conduct the Virginia All-State Honor Choir this coming April. Uh, and they asked if I would write a piece for them. And for the first time, I think I'm going to actually try and write an original composition uh, based on a poem by my new colleague, the other choir director at Portland State, uh, Cody Raven Morris, who writes uh, exquisite poetry. So we've been doing some cool collaborations and maybe this will uh, be our musical one. I, I don't, I've got some other ideas, so I need to bail out and do an arrangement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um and then I would then I will. And uh, I am uh, uh, working on, on publication for this, but it, it's trickier because who it is. But in the wake of uh, Stephen Sondheim uh, passing last year, I did an arrangement for acapella choir of Being Alive. Oh. It's a song of his that is, I think, completely different than any other version of it, uh, where I took out all the rhythm, all the accompaniment. Um, and it's either just completely block chords uh, for choir or set as a canon. Um, and I just love the simplicity and directness of, of how that turned out. I arranged that for Oregon repertory singers. So trying to get through the, the, uh, through his estate to have permission to, to publish that because it's a completely different take on, on that song, uh, than, than you see around there. And I just think it's one of his best. Well, I look forward to seeing that come through. So if my listeners want to learn more about you, where are you located online? Do you have a website? Uh, you know, I, I, I do not have my own website. It's been on my list of things to do for about 20 years. Uh, so the best way, place to go for most of my arrangements is the Earth Songs uh, website. Most of my music is published by Earth Songs. Uh, that's okay. earthsongschoralmusic.org, uh, or no, dot .com. Uh, or you can go to the Portland State website to learn more about me, or you can go to psuchamberchoir.com. Uh, I'm uh, or orsingers.org, Oregon Repertory Singers. Uh, all of those have have lots of stuff, um, and especially the Portland State uh, YouTube channel, the Portland State Choirs, are uh, full of a lot of my favorite recordings of all of these kinds of things. If people want to hear more, all right. Well, hey, listeners out there, if you've been looking for a way to keep the music moving and let people know about this podcast, you should buy a t-shirt, a mug, a pillow, or something else of your heart's desire. Visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough and click where it says merch to get the movable dough logo on an item of your choice. It's the perfect way to let people know how much you enjoy the show. Well, Ethan Sperry, it has been a true education to talk with you today. I appreciate you coming on the show and thanks for joining me on Movable Dough. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. My guest today was composer Dr. Ethan Sperry. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>